The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This evening we're continuing our series on the book of Ephesians, and I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, I believe it's page 977 in your pew Bibles. And I will invite you, if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word this evening. And as I read this and encourage you to follow along, let's just remember that this is the Word of God. It is the truth, and it is a precious gift. And may we receive it as such. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom... We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let us pray before we begin. Father, you have given us your word and you have given us your promises that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish your purpose. And so, Father, we are humbled that you and your mercy and grace are meeting with us this evening. We are humbled that you, the sovereign, almighty God who reigns over everything, are also reigning and working in our lives at this very moment, this very night, through the preaching of your word. May you do your work for your glory in our hearts. May we humbly bow before you and be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were at the morning service today, you had the privilege of hearing Dr. Rogers preach on Acts chapter 4 and and give us a sermon centered around the privilege of prayer. 
And a question came up to my, in my mind as I, I heard that message and also as I read through Ephesians chapter 3 this week and was studying it. And the question is this, do you ever get distracted when you pray? I hope so, I do. But as I read this, I saw some good news because the Apostle Paul got distracted when he was about to pray as well. If you look at this chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins by saying, for this reason. And he was about to launch into a prayer. We can figure that out as you read through the passage. You come to verse 14. He comes back to that same phrase, for this reason. And then he launches into his prayer in verse 14. So Paul got distracted, and not all distractions are bad. Because what we have here in verses 1 through 13, Paul's distracted by the glories of the gospel, the mystery, he calls it, of Jesus Christ. Now, he did come back to his prayer, so he didn't leave and not pray at all, but he had this great truth that he wanted to expound upon a little bit more before he continued with his prayer. And I'm thankful for that distraction, because as we look at it this evening, it reveals something that at first might seem too good to be true. Paul begins by talking about this mystery. You heard me read that word four times in this passage This evening, but what kind of mystery is this? What does that word mean as we read it here in the scriptures? Are we just think of things or people like Agatha Christie or Alfred Hitchcock or maybe for you you younger readers, Scooby Doo and the mystery of the Fun Park Phantom? That's a good one if you haven't read it. Is it something spooky? You know, if this was a movie, would this be the scene where you had the creepy music and And you're either at the edge of your seat or you're huddled in the corner with the covers over your eyes. What are we supposed to think about when we think about this mystery? And I think you can tell it's not how we would normally think of a mystery. It's not something puzzling. It's not a secret. But it does refer to something that has been hidden before that cannot be known apart from divine revelation. Mystery used here refers to a truth that had previously been hidden from human knowledge or human understanding, but now it's been made known by the revelation of God himself. And that's the first point I want to focus in here on this evening. It's the mystery revealed. The mystery revealed. Paul's writing to the Gentiles. These Gentiles were the non-Jewish nations, which probably includes almost all of us here Tonight, Almost all of us would be considered Gentiles according to the biblical definition. And the Gentiles that Paul's writing to, they would have been wondering as they are reading this or hearing this letter read to them, the first two chapters of Ephesians, they would have been wondering, is this too good to be true? Think about where they were at in life. They had been outsiders to the family of God. But now, all of a sudden, they're being told that they are welcomed in. You might think of it like an older child who has been an orphan all their life. And as they age and get older, they begin to wonder, will I ever be adopted? Will I ever have a mom and a dad? Will I ever have a loving home? And then all of a sudden, they are adopted into a family. And they wonder, is this too good to be true? Can I really have a family? Can I really have an inheritance? And and that's what the Gentiles would have been wondering. Can we too share in this inheritance? Is this genuine? Is this authentic? And they especially would have wondered that by the way that they were treated by some of the original members of God's family. 
But here Paul's answering that question, and he is saying, yes, it is true. It is authentic. You can be assured because of its divine origin. The reason that you can be assured, the reason you can know that it's true is because it was from God. This was not from Paul. It was not his idea. In verse 3, Paul says that this mystery was made known to him by revelation. Verse 5, he said it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, by God himself. So is what Paul talking about here, is it true? And the answer is yes. Without a doubt, yes. This mystery has been revealed. It originated in the mind of God. It was made known by God. So we can be assured that it is true. Now, some of you may watch the presidential debate tomorrow night. And, and if you're like me, as you watch those debates, I have a hard time knowing what is true. I don't know who's telling the truth and who's telling a lie. But here, you don't have to wonder about that at all. God is the ultimate fact checker. And this is true. Because God is true and his word is true. Now before we unpack what this mystery is, there's an important lesson for us to remember here. And the lesson is this. It is a gracious gift to know the truth of the gospel. It is a gracious gift for us to know the truth of the gospel. There are some people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. There are some people who don't have the mental capacity to understand the gospel. And there are many who are dead in their sin and are blind to the glories of of Jesus Christ. It is a gracious gift to know the truth of the gospel. For Paul to know this took a gracious supernatural work of God. Paul didn't discover this through his intellectual knowledge or through his great skills. It wasn't as if he was a Sherlock Holmes or a Columbo or a Nancy Drew. He didn't figure this out. This was not a reward for him for his good behavior. He didn't know it. He didn't discover it. He didn't invent it. It was revealed to him by God. You might remember that. It was kind of an ironic situation on the road to Damascus when his vision was truly opened to the glory of Jesus Christ. His physical eyesight was lost. But he had that revelation. Now for us, our experience might not be as dramatic as the Apostle Paul's, but let us never forget that the same is true for us. We know the truth of the gospel only because God has graciously supernaturally revealed this truth to us. And so we don't know the truth because we are better than others. We don't know the truth because of our great wisdom or because of our good deeds, but only because of the unexpected, unmerited, undeserved grace of God. Because God has revealed it to us. He has opened our blind eyes. So let us not forget this. We know this because of the revelation of of God himself. And at this time of year, I think especially the temptation can be to look down on others who might be different from us, who might think or believe different from us, and maybe even get angry with them. And, and yes, we can stand up for what is right, and yes, we can speak out against what is wrong, but may we do that with humility and compassion and grace. 
And if the Holy Spirit convicts us of a self-righteous attitude or a proud attitude or a judgmental attitude or demeanor, may we see that for the grievous sin that it is and go to the cross and see Christ there dying for our sin and repent and trust in God to forgive us and cleanse us through his Son. And then may we strive to have the humble mind of Christ and ask, that God in his mercy would make us as gracious and compassionate and loving toward others as he has been to us through his son, Jesus. It's a gracious gift to know the truth of the gospel. It has been revealed by God. May we never forget that. So this mystery has been revealed by God. It is true, but it is also good. And we see that in the next point I want to focus on, and that's the mystery stated. What is this mystery that Paul is talking about? And he he spells it out very clearly for us in verse 6. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now that might seem as a pretty straightforward sentence, but it's actually a little bit hard to capture What the Greek is saying here. It's something like this. We are heirs together. We are members together. We are partakers of the promise in Christ together. The mystery here is not just that Gentiles can now be saved. You know, that had been, God had revealed that in the Old Testament. They had, the Jews had known that God would bring Gentiles into the the body of Christ or, or that he would bring them into salvation, I should say. But nowhere in the Old Testament are we told that both Jews and Gentiles would be united together in Christ as one new body, as a new society of God's people, as the church. This is the mystery that is revealed. It's it's the mystery which was so hard for the Jews to accept and for the Gentiles to believe that could be true. We see this in in chapter 2. You can see the contrast. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, this is Paul reminds the Gentiles of what they were. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what they were used to. That's what they knew had been true of them. But now it's a complete change from that. Now, instead of being separated from Christ, they are heirs with Christ. Now, instead of being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, they are members together of one body. Now, instead of being strangers to the covenant of promise, they are partakers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. And let's just look briefly at that one phrase at a time. There's three phrases in verse 6 that spell out what this mystery is. The first is they are heirs of the same blessing together. See, for most Jews up to this point, their spiritual separation from the Gentiles was so absolute and so right in their minds that they thought any idea of total equality before God was inconceivable practically blasphemous in their minds. In fact, they would rather kill someone than let them teach this truth. Paul knew this. He had experienced it. He had barely lived through it 
before. An angry Jewish mob nearly killed him for teaching this mystery. Remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote these words. Verse 1 of chapter 3, he calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. So it was Paul's ministry to the Gentiles that landed him in prison. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 21 and 22. But the gist of that story is that Paul was in the temple. He was in a place of worship when a mob of Jews grabbed him and accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple and defiling that holy place. And that was punishable by death. But that accusation was not true. But the mob didn't care. They just grabbed Paul. They took him out of the temple. And they were beating him to death. They only stopped when Roman soldiers came to find out what was going on. And the mob was in such an uproar that the soldiers had to physically pick Paul up and carry him away from them to protect him from the violence of the crowd. And then things settled down and Paul wanted to make his defense before the people. And they quieted down and they listened as he spoke to them in their own Hebrew language, him being a Jew himself. And they listened quietly as he made his defense until he got to the point where he said that God had sent him to the Gentiles. And when he said that, the mob went crazy again and they started shouting. They were about to kill Paul until the Roman soldiers came and rescued him and took him to prison. So this reference, when Paul made that reference to the Gentiles, that infuriated the Jews. That was the mindset of the Jews that day. The Jews wanted to keep the Gentiles out, and the Gentiles had certainly felt that alienation. But now, Paul says, no. God is doing something new. He has revealed this mystery. Jews and Gentiles together And they are fellow heirs with Christ. They, who were once separated from Christ, now instead have the same inheritance in Christ and with Christ. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3, where he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And just pause there for a moment. Faith is the key. Because the reality was, Jews were not part of the body of Christ just because they were born Jews. And Gentiles were not excluded from the body of Christ just because they were born Gentiles now that this mystery has been revealed. The only way to be brought into the body of Christ was through faith in Christ alone. Not where we're born, not what we do, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The the chapter goes on in Galatians 3 to say there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what makes you truly a member of God's family is if you are in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ. So now the amazing truth was Jews and Gentiles both share the same legal status before God. There's no inner or outer circle of the saved. It's not that the Jews were first-rate Christians and the Gentiles were second-rate Christians or even the other way around. We might think of it this way. It's not that the Calvinists are first-rate Christians and the Arminians are second-rate Christians and not the other way around. All of us who are in Christ 
inherit all of God's blessings jointly together. We Gentiles are heirs together with the Jews, one church. I think it's a little hard for us to grasp and understand today because we don't see how great that divide was between the Jews and the Gentiles. In the culture we live in today, we don't see that. But God is bringing them together, one church. So we might think of the things that do divide us and see them as one church. Charismatics are not second-rate Christians. Reformed are not first-rate Christians. And it's not the other way around. We are one church united in Christ. Those who like to worship with the organ are not first rate, and those who worship with a praise band are not second rate, nor is it the other way around. We are one body united in Christ. Those who would vote Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, there's not first rate, second rate Christians. We are one body united in Christ. There are many things that might divide us, but our union in Christ trumps them all. And God is glorified, and the transforming power of the gospel is on display when we focus on and celebrate and work out that unity instead of letting our differences divide us. We are heirs together with Christ. That is worth celebrating and rejoicing in. The second phrase, let's move on to the second phrase. We are also members of the same body together. The Gentiles were once alienated from the Jews, but now they are members of the same body. So they are no longer strangers. They're no longer outsiders. They're no longer outcasts. And it's not just that they are now, well, maybe boarders or guests. You know, okay, you can come into the home, but stay in that little corner. No, they are now sons and daughters, fellow citizens with The saints, they are members together of the same body. I don't know, maybe it'll help if you're a a football fan. It's, It's Eagles fans and Cowboys fans cheering together. It's Steelers fans and Ravens fans tailgating together in unity and harmony. That might seem impossible. I don't know. So they don't just have the same legal status as heirs but they also have the same family status. And Paul would later see some amazing fruit of this truth because later in his ministry, the Jews in Jerusalem would be in need and Paul would go to the Gentiles and ask them to help their Jewish brothers and sisters. And the Gentiles would show that they were truly part of the same family because they would actually give their money to help their Jewish brothers and sisters in need. And Paul took this Gentile offering to the Jews in Jerusalem, and the Jewish brothers and sisters had the grace and the humility to receive this gift from their fellow members of the body of Christ. We must work for this unity. We we must grow into this unity. You know, the Bible uses the metaphor of a body, the body of Christ, this image to show us what it is to be part of God's family. And we are all members of the same body, but we have different functions. And so the Bible might say one might be a hand, or one might be an ear or an eye. We have different functions, but we're part of the same body. But what happens when we experience conflict 
within the body of Christ. You know what happens? Sometimes people say, well, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. Or I'm going to avoid that person. I'm not going to serve together with that person anymore. And how can that be? We are part of the same body. That would be like saying, well, my right leg is not going to interact with my left leg anymore. And they're going to go in opposite directions. Well, what would happen? You couldn't walk. You couldn't ride a bike. You couldn't run. You couldn't function. The body then cannot function as God designed it to. We are members of the same body. When one part suffers, we all suffer. When one hurts, we all hurt. When we fight amongst ourselves, the church suffers. And our witness for Christ before a watching world is tarnished. If you, I, I don't know what conflicts you might be experiencing today, but if you are in conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, may you know that Christ died for that brother or sister in Christ. And you might, say, you might say, well, Troy, you don't know how deep the hurt is. And you're right, I do not know, but I do know the lengths that God went to reconcile not just you to God, but you to one another in the church so that the church might display His glory. And the hurt that you might experience, if you think about it honestly, pales in comparison to the offense of your sin against a holy God. And the price that you might pay to be reconciled to them pales in comparison to the price that Jesus paid for you. You are members of the same body Together, you have been purchased together by the blood of Christ. Jesus prayed that his church would be one, that we would be perfectly one, so the world would know that God had sent him, so that the world would know that God loves us, even as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. Is that what the world sees when they look at our church today? May we work for that unity. May we be willing to suffer for that unity The glory of Christ is worth it. Beloved, we are members of the same body together. We are also partakers of the same promise together. The third phrase in verse 6, see, once we were strangers to the covenant of promise, now we are partakers of the same promise together. This is the one grand promise of redemption, that all our sins can be forgiven that we can be made new, adopted into God's family. We can know God. We can have him as our father, the father who is always for us, who gives us eternal life, and we can live with him forever. You know, again, when you watch the the political debates, not only is it hard to know what's true, but you know promises are being made that cannot be kept, that will not be fulfilled. But once again, Here is a promise that is true. This promise has been kept. It will be kept. And you share it together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, Jews and Gentiles together in fellowship with Christ that will last forever. And we share this with a great variety of peoples and races and cultures. People from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Well, the Bible says that this this blessing, this benefit that we share together all comes in and through the gospel. 
the good news that Christ, the perfect Son of God, who never sinned, died for sinners like you and like me. That he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. And because this is true, because the gospel is true, the only way to be a partaker of the promise is to repent and believe the good news. This good news is both true and good, and it's too good to keep to ourselves. And that's the third point, third and final point I want to make from this passage this evening. We see this in verse 7 through 10 of chapter 3. This is the mystery proclaimed. See, this mystery was revealed to Paul, says in verse 8, so that he might preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Other versions use words like immeasurable or untraceable. They are so fast that you cannot discover their end. Paul says in chapter 2 that it will take all eternity for God to unveil these riches of Christ to us. But he has been going through in these first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been listing them for us, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's told us that we are now adopted into the family of God. We now know God as our Father. Instead of just facing his just judgment for our sin and eternal torment in hell forever, we now can receive his full forgiveness through Christ. And we are recipients of his love both now and forever as we will spend eternity with him in heaven. He says, we were once dead in our sin, but we are now alive with Christ, saved by grace. We've been raised with Christ, and we are actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we are saved by grace. It's not our own doing. It's not a result of our own works so that no one can boast, but we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. He tells us that in Christ Jesus... We, who were once far off, having no hope without God in the world, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, so that Christ himself is our peace. And he has restored broken and alienated human relationships, and he has also reconciled us to God through his body on the cross. So now all who trust in Christ have access in one spirit to the Father. So now instead of being kicked out of the temple, and if we would go into the temple, they'd want to put us to death, we are now actually being made into a holy temple in the Lord ourselves, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is a small sample of the unsearchable riches of Christ, but they are the riches of Christ. They only come to us through Christ. You cannot earn them. You cannot buy them. You do not deserve them, but they are freely offered to all who will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And when we do, what a great exchange. We receive all of Christ's riches, everything good, and he takes all our sin and punishment and death, everything bad. He makes us a new person, part of a new family with a perfect, loving, heavenly Father. 
part of a new society. We're headed for a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sin, no tears, no more pain, but the dwelling place of God will be with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will make all things new. Do you long for that day? Is that not good news? You might say that's too good to be true, and yet it is true, and it is good, but it is too good to keep to ourselves, amen? Paul was to preach this to the Gentiles, but not only to the Gentiles. Verse 9, he says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, this mystery was not just the gospel, but it was the church. The result of the gospel is the creation of this new community, the church. So God created the church as this living proof of his multifaceted wisdom so that through the church, through the body of Christ, his wisdom and his glory would be made known to the angels. That's what it says in verse 10. The angels are watching us. They are learning from us and we affect their praise. The church centered on Christ, united in Christ, is essential to God's plan. You may have heard someone say this. It seems to be popular today maybe particularly among younger people, say things like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Well, then you don't love what God loves. You don't love what Jesus came to build. And you are missing the whole point of history. The church is central to history. This new humanity that God is creating, multiracial, multinational, This is a community that will rule the universe with Christ. It will survive history. God is building his church throughout history. That's what God is doing. The church is central to the gospel. Christ did not die only for individuals, but also for the church to create a single new humanity. So maybe you've also heard someone say, well, if you were the only one, Christ would have died for you. And you can appreciate the intent behind that, trying to communicate to people the incredible depth of God's love for them. But if you isolate that statement, it is not true. It's not biblical. You see here in this passage, God did not send his son to die for one person. He sent him to die for his people, the church, to unite them Together, his plan was not just to save one person. His glorious plan was to save people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and to unite them together in one body for his glory. The church is central to our Christian walk. If you are going to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him, the church is not an option for believers. It is essential that you are part of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. And not just come late and leave early, but that you get involved. That you use the gifts God has given you for the building up of his church. 
that you serve, that you support. One of the promises, one of the vows you make when you join this church is that you will support the church and its work and worship to the best of your ability. That is what God desires of you. You know, the truth is, we know that no church on earth is perfect, but we still must be committed to it. As we think about these truths, we recognize that we are not apostles as Paul was. We have not received new revelation or fresh revelation, but we have received the truth of God's word. And this revelation is ours just as much as it was Paul's, and our responsibility to proclaim it is the same as Paul's, and to live it. This is the greatest news that the world has ever heard. It should be too good to be true. But by God's grace, it is both abundantly good and eternally true. And so may our witness as a church, as God's people together, may it make that compellingly clear, and may it even lead the angels to worship our great God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may you take your truth and your words and apply it to the hearts of your people that you would be glorified and honored, that you would accomplish your eternal plan in Christ, which we know you are doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.